Hello. Welcome to 97.7 K-Wink Radio. We are Mass Liberation Radio, and I am Lily. I'm Kaylee. And I'm Nathaniel. We are so happy to have you here today and want to thank um, K-Wink for all of the amazing things that they do and for all of the amazing DJs and community members that make this program possible. Right here at the top of the hour, actually, we have our first guest, Miss um, Jenny Breckis, who is a councilwoman, and we are very excited to have her talking about the new city manager appointment. Um, and we have some questions from our con- her, her constituents as well. So... So thank you so much for calling in, Councilwoman Buckus. I'm going to, for the viewers or for the listeners who are tuning in for the first time, also for you, uh, for being your first time in the show, on the show, I'm going to reintroduce folks to Mass Liberation really briefly. And then we want, of course, very briefly, want you to introduce yourself because believe it or not, are lots of folks that still don't know about our very neighborly um, city council folks. So, oh. but mass liberation, <laughs> if you can believe it, but mass liberation is, uh, has been around for a couple years now. It's a community, a community advocacy group or collective. It started down in Las Vegas in Clark County by uh, an organizer called named Leslie. Leslie Turner and she with the Progressive Leadership Alliance of Nevada, also who we know you're familiar with, um, started this collective to center and and amplify the voices of people who are directly impacted by police violence. So, at the most brutal and extreme cases, that you know that's what we see, like just has happened in Wisconsin in the um, recently when police shoot unarmed civilians and particularly unarmed black men and black residents. And, but also police violence looks so different and, 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 and it impacts on various, on various levels. So mass liberation actually at the last legislative session took over a hundred um, family members of people who have been impacted by police violence personally or, you know, their loved ones to the legislature. And for instance, and from that effort, we saw the sweep, some of the sweeping reforms to criminal justice um, come from that. Even before then, they made their first mark um, running a, a candidate against the incumbent district attorney, Steve Wolfson in Clark County, a very tough on crime and many would allege corrupt um, district attorney. So Mass Lib wanted to unseat this person, and and they they didn't win the election, but they definitely made a name for themselves. And and now after this rebellion, latest rebellion, Black Lives Matter rebellion, you know, in May, have been at the forefront of across the state of of, of fighting for racial justice here in Nevada. And so I'm delighted with my co-host to have really. Um, helped grow it here in northern Nevada and in in Washoe and also to amplify the voices and to build power for for black and brown people here here in Washoe so 
So this radio is a part of that. So you're going to hear things on with us that you know we don't hear in the area in, in northern Nevada or really across across the state. So if you could take you know um, about a minute or so, so folks have a sense of who you are um, and why you serve on the city council, um, and kind of maybe what is your guiding value as a as a member of the city council of the city council. Thank you. Sure. Well, congratulations on all the good work that you've been doing, and thank you for having me on. I'm Jenny Breckis. I'm the Reno City Council member for Ward 1. I'm in my second term. I'm running for my third term. Um, my guiding value for serving on the City Council is an equitable community where um, all people have the same opportunities, um, no matter who they are, where they live, um, what their um, backgrounds are. Um, in terms of the services that uh, the city provides to its residents. And um, I decided to run for city council in 2011 in the depths of the last recession because I felt that the city had made some very poor decisions that did not position us well to weather that recession. And it just one day clicked to me that I know a lot about cities and could be um, pretty... Um, provide the necessary leadership on the city council because I have a background in cities. I'm a city planner by training. I'd worked for um, three cities at that point, including the city of Reno. And I knew as much about cities as anyone sitting on the city council. So I decided to bring that experience um, to the city council. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Could I, I want to pr frame the conversation just a little bit further. Sure. Um, and then, and then Lilith or, or Kaylee, y'all, if we kind of have some questions that we want to ask, we don't have to go in order. Um, but this conversation is really important to us because it has been, I think a lot of people can attest to in, in cities, small and, and, and large across the country, it's been really hard to engage with elected officials um, in these past couple months not just in the midst of the historic rebellion, but also because of the health pandemic, right? So we've had to call into city council members. We haven't been able to engage in public and have normal types of conversations. So, and in, in saying that, that we we also feel that, or all me, I feel that the council has been um, in response to the rebellion that and and have the uprising. For racial justice that has happened in Reno and in Washoe we had we've had multiple demonstrations a beautiful um a beautiful um I forget what the word that we called it but a, a, when we had a beautiful ceremony um for locally when we had singers and and commemoration we also we've also seen escalations about racial justice in in Reno and in Washoe we've seen die-ins we've seen protests and so this conversation is really important because we don't we feel like we have not been able to have critical and nuanced deliberation with the council as a community um, since May about these really critical issues. So where should we start? Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, I, you know, I feel like I know that I, I call in often. I'm sure you're familiar with my voice, councilwoman. Um you know, just, and the, I think the last couple of times I've called in just asking how we can 
um, see some solidarity for our black lives, black and brown lives in our in our community. Where I know that we had a um, a mural, and that's fine. But um, other than that, you know, there hasn't been to me as a black woman in the community um, a huge uh, gesture or even anything make you know symbolizing something um, in solidarity. I've spoken to other council people about it as well. Um, and so I guess the first the first question we have is um, about the curfew, about suspending the curfew, um, about how it, it happened a couple of times kind of abruptly. And if, if, correct me please if I'm wrong, that it's still kind of in effect, why it's problematic and what your what your views kind of are on the curfew and its effects and what um what the purpose there was. And yeah, I'll just sure. remind sorry, just to remind our viewers that the curfew went in it went into effect, you know, throughout Washoe County the night of of um what escalated into what some might call a riot in in downtown Reno that was disconnected from, you know, the large demonstration the day before. Um, and that curfew extended throughout the entirety of Washoe County and it gave the mayor emergency powers. Um, it's part, or it's part of her emergency powers and the council, you know, voted essentially got a staff report from the, from, I forget which department, but okaying that, that this curfew, um, that it was proper, and 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 yeah, like like Lil just said, it, it's still technically around. So, thank you. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you brought up a lot, but um, uh, on terms of doing business during the pandemic, um, which we're approaching, um, you know, if you really look, March, April, May, June, July, August, September. I mean, we're approaching our seventh month of these abnormal times. And it really is hard all up and down um, the government levels, I think, to do democracy. I think, you know, there's questions about how we're going to do elections, which are central to democracy, you know, to how at the city of Reno, we have a lot of boards and commissions that help advise the council on a lot of issues. And some of them aren't meeting and it's, it's, it's very challenging and it's even challenging to do our business. um, And so, you know, I won't under, um, you know, acknowledge the, the difficulties of life, you know, doing government work or any kind of work, school, right? But um, but having said that, the confluence with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, uh, you know, is a movement of, in in my experience, unprecedented um, engagement. But it's a coming at a time that engagement is very very challenging. Now, is that a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. I I don't know. But now specifically on the curfew, I think that is a really good question because, um, and I have raised it, and I've also watched other cities where it's come into play. Uh, I can't remember the specific example recently, but um, right after that event, when the mayor uh, had the curfew, and and as, as I recall, the charter gives the mayor curfew powers individually, which is one of the few um, powers that the mayor has. We have a weak mayor form of mm-hmm. government, but... There are a few powers unique to the mayor. That's one of them. The council is the body mm-hmm. can do uh, um, uh, an emergency. And I think actually the city manager, we just hired a city manager today. I think he actually right. uh, requested for some city, some emergency powers. So you have emergency powers. Now, whatever those are defined up, you know, they're rather multifaceted and broad. 
But I have asked and I've inquired about the uh, suspension of an emergency. And I think that needs the, the charter silent on that. Um, as far as I can recall, but the council can definitely pass a resolution on pretty much anything. And I think there should be sunset dates on um, emergencies. And I asked that very early on because I said, look, we're, um, we're operating now under two emergencies, COVID emergency and, um, you know, this, this emergency of, of, uh, you know, the event that turned into, um, you know, the, the city hall, uh, um, getting broken, you know, the windows mm-hmm. and all smashed and the breach, we call it the breach in city hall. So, um, but that one, you're right, never got suspended. Now there was a curfew with that, but I think the curfew when it was enacted had a sunset date. And then, and then I think it, there was a second day they tried to do and, and she pulled it off. But, um, I would like to see formal, um, pullback of emergencies, um, as a formal action before the council, I think that is important, but we just, you know, that's some of these operational issues that just have not been, um, you know, gotten to at the council level. And I'll add a lot, a fair amount of this. Another thing unique to Reno is we had a city manager resign right before COVID came. And actually she stood around, she hung around for about a month, not doing a whole lot when you need, really needed, you know, the leadership. And then we had a, an interim person who, um, you know, his time, his clock's about to uh, time out here and go, went through the recruitment process. And just for your viewers to know, in our form of government, we're, I said we're a weak mayor, we're a strong manager. So the manager is the chief executive uh, of all operations. You know, at the state of Nevada, the governor's the chief executive, and he's the highest elected official. So he has the whole apparatus that he runs. At the city of Reno, you have the a weak mayor with some duties, a city council, and the manager runs the day-to-day operations. And the most important things that the council does then are hire the manager and then set the budget and pass it off to him, her, to administer it. Right. So, um, so you know, COVID, um, the, the heightened engagement on Black Lives Matter, and, um, you, know, poli- and uh, you know, policing issues. And uh, without your chief operating officer securely pl- in place has been a challenge for Reno. Um, and, you know, there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that you brought up the the hierarchy of the mayor and the city manager. I know I've been getting into all sorts of conversations about exactly, you know, who holds the power, who's in charge of this, who's in charge of that. And unless you're, you know, stuck at home on quarantine, a lot of people just didn't really realize the functions of our um, city government and are just now kind of discovering those things. Um, So when we, can we talk about the former city, I mean, former as of today, city manager? Yeah. Sure. So um, let me just say, yes. oh, go ahead. Yeah, specifically your question. Yeah, we have a specific question. I mean, Nathaniel, would you like to, I know this was your question specifically, so I didn't want to say it. Sure. Sure. Um, and just to respond really quickly that your point on a formal pullback of that emergency or that curfew power makes sense to me but also what you said about the council being able to pass a resolution pretty much about anything i think is an important nugget or takeaway yes. from this episode yes um, that has been a question and, everybody wants to know 
Um, I, so I, I did just want to highlight that. And I, and I believe, I believe you have, you have me- mentioned some problematics of the curfew when we were all in the thick of it. Um, but I, I just, I want to remember that there was, I mean, speaking for myself, I was personally scared as a black man in Reno where black men are shot at astronomical proportions compared to, you know, our proportion of the community. Um, I was scared. And there were people who were, who, who were cited. There were people who this did impact. And for instance, our ex boss, Kaylee and I, we worked at, at plan before and Bob called into a city council meeting and, and said something like how, you know, he went and strolled around downtown in the middle of this curfew, but other bodies and other people in our community wouldn't have that same confidence or assurance that they'd be able to be able to do that. And it, it's just sad because we don't think, I personally don't think that other members of the body understand when you do implement something that is unprecedented, like that curfew we experienced. So, so I think it's, I, I know we don't have the time now, but it's, it's not something that we should pass over as a community because um, it is, it is a form, it can be a form of oppression, but we want to really make use of your time, Councilwoman. So we know that, um, we, so we know that the interim city manager you just mentioned was the police chief, right? The, the um, chief Soto. Um, and it was, seen as incredibly problematic by you know our our crowd that the acting city manager would also be the person who was just responsible for executing um for really executing police power which is oppressive in itself um so now that there is a new city manager um we we wonder what and my co-host will help me guide this question, but we wonder what direction he's going to take, um, especially considering that Jason Soto, as a police chief, chief of police, he but he he recently admitted that he perpetuated a climate which discouraged minorities and women in the RPD um, from at least 2016, and he's despite he's claimed to publicly publicly support diversifying the police force. Although his his record as police chief doesn't doesn't say that, so we, how can a new city manager who has all this power we're talking about reverse some of that? How can we be accountable to to voices in our community who are raising you know alarm about racial justice issues and policing? And so, and yeah, that, that's what I'm that's what I'm that's what I'm curious about. Do you want to add on to that, Kaylee? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of my, my question too, is that we, I feel like there was a very vocal, um, calling from constituents asking that Soto step down for so, for so long, especially in response to Black Lives Matter, um, because, you know, really in retrospect had, um, had Micaiah Lee happened right after George Floyd, I think we would be talking about more than a couple of broken windows. Um, and I think that that skating by under the um, stewardship of Jason Soto was kind of lucky for the city. But, you know, it kind of brought to light the amount of officer-involved shootings that we have in our city. And um, 
Yeah, just kind of wondering why was that even was that talked about among you um, as a as a body? Did did anyone kind of discuss it? I know Naomi Dewar um, at a at the at the mural um, unveiling. I was I was standing there and had a sign um, asking Soda to step down, and she wouldn't wouldn't address me, wouldn't speak to me. The only thing she said is he's doing a great job and he's great when, you know, the very issue that we're talking about, he perpetuated for, for years. So, you know, um, I know a lot of people just felt very um, disenfranchised and and unheard. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that. Sure, sure. So um, uh, the the charter, which is our constitution, you know, it's, it's what guides us gives the manager the authority and everyone else, you know, the roles for the mayor and the council. Um, has the council also uh, ratify the appointment by the city manager of the chief, the fire and the police chief? So, um, you know, it's a, those those department heads are a little bit um, different, and they're about sixty five percent of our general fund. So they're you know they take up the bulk of the okay. of the um, you know the budget and the personnel. So, you know, when, when in March, um, the former city manager said she was leaving, uh, the council knew, you know, they needed, you know, someone to step in. And I think because, um, you know, for various reasons, he was one of the more longstanding, if not the most longstanding employee, uh, at the department head rank, uh, someone who the council had, um, uh, ratified. Um, there was just kind of a, you know, for various reasons, he was the best fit at the time to hold down the fort. And so this is well before, you know, the Black Lives Matter, well before George Floyd. I want to let people know that Makai Lee happened in Sparks. That was a Sparks shooting, not a Reno shooting. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, um, so I think he wasn't even that excited to do it, but it seemed like he also had a deep enough bench over in the police department to kind of step away from that role. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what the thinking was at the time. Little did we know that, you know, in hindsight, you know, he probably wasn't the best department because the department mm-hmm. became very much of central focus, you know, with the mm-hmm. black lives matter, um, you know, um, movement. So, uh, you know, but you know what, you know, at a certain time, um, I don't know that he, I don't recall that he discouraged minorities or other folks from applying. I've, um, gone to some of the police recruitments before when, um, before they go to Academy, you know, when they're kind of going through the physical test. And I'm also the liaison to the civil service commission, which is an independent body, Mm. um, that helps administer all of our, um, you know, Mm -hmm. tests to have a very apolitical qualified workforce. It's, it's a very, uh, reform oriented kind of setup that Reno has. That's unique. Um, those are mayoral appointees. So that's a special privilege of the mayor. Um, Mm -hmm. but through that role, I've seen, um, pretty good efforts and strides to try to, um, you know, uh, you know, bring, bring people into the police force who maybe haven't or would not have thought about it in the past. And some of those were the testing related to the grip. So, you know, maybe a strength, it, it was more of a finesse thing. So women could, could test more. We're also moving to allowing remote testing. So people 
uh, don't have to be in Reno physically to do testing. So um, I haven't Councilor, seen a whole lot of discouragement Reno, to be, there. To be, to be, cl- to be clear, the, the, um, the discouragement, I, I know RGJ reported on that there was a perpetual, there was perpetuated a climate which discouraged folk, folks to apply but the but we don't want to really we don't we don't want to talk about police training at all right now. But we do want to when we're talking about Jason Soto, for instance, we're talking about someone who was at the helm over a police department. Who I think the data, the last data from mapping police violence that we have comes from in 2016, when the Reno Police Department, for instance, shot black residents black residents of Reno at a rate of 27.1 times the white majority or that. So when we're talking about actions of the local police department, we're talking about why are they killing? Why do they kill black people? At these astronomical rates, not why are more of them not allowed to enter the ranks of, of the police department. And when we're saying well, that's why people are calling for Jason Soto to step down, not because they couldn't get a job at the police department. So do you understand where the frustration and where kind of folks think that for him to be essentially leading the city as the acting manager, but why that, why that is why it's not a good look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. And, That's just all. To... and we would love to share that with that information. Sure. If, if the, if the RPD and the council are not aware of the rates of violence that, that our Reno Police Department enacts on our residents, we'd be happy to provide that to And I just want to well, add to... you know... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Just... Yeah, just to add that, you know, this, this issue is way before George Floyd. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement started in 2014 with Mike Brown, and it's just escalated since then. Um... Yeah, and and not in, not only that, you know, in the, when we talk about the '60s, the first BLM, the Black Liberation Movement. So I'm I would hope that, but I'm not sure. Like that the that the qualifications and the the rubric that is followed when when appointing a manager that those kinds of things were thought about before George Floyd, right? Like it didn't take right. George Floyd right. for us to think about why having a police chief would be problematic. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I and I, I can appreciate that. I think, and I'm not discounting that too many um, Black people are getting uh, shot by police and, and at rates that exceed, you know, the general public in Reno and other places, you, you know. Thank and you. so I'm not in any way discounting that. But I, I will say that, you know, it was more of a, of a um, kind of an, organization, internal organization capacity issue rather than, um, y- you know, a reflection of, you know, advancing sure. uh, Mr. Soto. I mean, I think in, in some ways he had to kind of be really pushed to step in and do the job. But in terms of the data, um, you know, I, I think that um, and I've known him for some time and, and knew him when he was getting started on this. I don't know how many of you um, or your viewers know um, Brian Berghart. He used to be the editor of the um, 
Reno News and Review. I don't I don't know mm-hmm. if you'll yes. remember Rest him. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Reno News and Review. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was doing this topic of tracking shootings mm-hmm. when no one else was. Right. And he was living here in Reno. And I used to have conversations with him about it and, you know, thought, wow, he really is somewhere. And then he just kind of took off because, you know, and, and, and I think what happened is other people, other statisticians or investigators started using his data. And the day after, um, you know, we had the, the um, you know, what was it, May 25th, I think, in, in, here in mm-hmm. Reno. I called him the very next morning. Yeah, I, I called mm-hmm. him the very next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lives awesome. now out of state. And we had a long continuation of conversations we've had over several years. And he's a little more guarded in some of the um, analysis when it comes to Reno. Mm-hmm. You know, and he put mm-hmm. that on my Facebook post. It's all on record on my personal Jenny Breckett Facebook, and you can see how he frames it. So um, the data that you use um, or, or um, employ, um, I'd be pretty careful about, or just always say which data you're using. And I frankly think he's got the best data mm-hmm. and it may not Fatal be. Encounter. Because, yeah, he, yes. his, his data, he, he really, you know, any data person's going to go in and, and, you know, really go wonkish on it all. But I think because he's from Reno and he was early, I think he does have the best data. And some of that data is not as high as other people in the aftermath of all that were stating. And so I throw a little bit of a, um, you know, woe out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prefer Brian's data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but Brian's the first one to say that's not to discount that, um, Police officers in Washoe County are uh, using too much force on, um, you know, too many in various um, communities. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, you know, talking about Reno, um, you know, because some people were calling in and saying Reno is, you know, the highest, and and I I don't think that was quite. No. That's not true. Um, Brian's data set, but if someone used his data set to maybe project that, and I don't think Brian really agreed with that. Mm-hmm. So. When I when I say no, when I say various communities, I mean the violence enacted upon various identities and communities, even within Washoe. I, I mean, most of the IOS reports of officer-involved shootings that we see, not most of them, and again, don't quote me, but too many of them are involving folks who are clearly, like Makai Lee, experiencing mental health crisis. So, again, police force and killing of Black folks and Black men in particular is an epidemic in itself. And and even if we take off that character of the, of the crisis in Washoe, police violence is still a crisis, especially against folks suffering mental health crises. Against homeless folks, for for example, which we do, we specifically want to talk, want to press you on that as well. We can we can move on um, from from Soto for now to be able to cover a few more topics if we have some more time with you. Normally, we would be playing music <laughs> right now, but we want to take we really want to take advantage of your time. Yeah, I feel like this is sure. extremely, it's amazing that you're giving us this time. It's very important for everybody to 
understand um, where we're at here. Um, and I know we we also asked a couple of folks um, other questions, you know, because other people in the community had questions, especially with this new. Oh, cool. I'm sorry. I said, cool. Oh, um, about the new city manager um, appointment. And I wanted to preface by um, congratulating you because we rarely see council members dissent um, when decisions are being made, or at least that's been my observation is it seems like everybody agrees and then the thing happens. But um, in this particular decision, um, there was a moment where you were like, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> And um, so thank you for that, um, first of all. And we just wanted to talk about, you know, how this decision was made and why um, the position wasn't um, a couple of different things about, you know, how how y'all sourced the um, position. Uh, we know that somebody, a, a group was paid $30,000 to find candidates and there were only, you know, there were only seven women, only a few were even from Reno. Um, there are a few black folks. One was a black woman that I thought was really cool. Edward Coleman I really wanted to see, even though I know that it wasn't um, within the right time constraints. But um, I think part of that is that it wasn't broadly advertised locally. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of shed light on those, um, on those, any of that, any of that. Yeah. So going back to when Miss uh, Newby said she was resigning, the council had some discussion. It was reported in the RGJ that some council members and the mayor, you know, didn't think we needed to do a recruitment. They wanted to have Miss Newby help hire her replacement. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that was anything I'd ever heard of happening before um, to have someone on their door way out, you know, be part of the story and find their replacement. But we did go with a recruiter. Um We'd gone with a recruiter before, and they're important. They do a they they do a good job. I want to tell you that I've worked for with six city managers, and they're a unique breed. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, you know it, it's a certain um, it 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 is a real um, you know people come to it from different places. Sometimes they are police chiefs. Sometimes they're city planners like me. Sometimes they're finance folks. They come to it from lots of different training grounds, but when they become a city manager, they're a very unique person. It's kind of like a, a chief executive of a company, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and, you know, saying, well, you know, not too many from Nevada. Well, Nevada only is 17 cities and Nevada and Reno's the largest one. So you don't have a lot of pickings in there. Now, diversity um, in the professional ranks of uh, local government, now that's a big topic, a whole topic, and it's one that, you know, needs to, um, you know, like the police force, you know, we really do need to think and have a concerted effort on um, diversifying, you know, the ranks of our, you know, government, all, all levels. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that starts with educational levels and educational opportunity, but, but different, different ways. But um, I thought we had a good pool. I thought we had a good pool. We had about 52 people, but the council, uh, and I stood as an outlier, maybe Ms. Stewart somewhat kind of was in line with me, seemed to be in a hurry to just get this done. Um, One of the members didn't even want to interview. Just wanted to make an appointment. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, I know we have COVID. I know we have, yeah, I know. I know we have COVID going on, but 
last time we hired three years ago, which we didn't really hire successfully. She was not an experienced city manager either. And I lukewarmly supported her, um, but, and tried to, you know, help her succeed, but she was out of her element and, um, they didn't even want to have one-on-one conversations, bring these two people to town to sit with us, which I thought was very odd. That was shocking. Yeah, set up a phone call, but one member just clearly wanted to move forward, but they did go through and interview three. I wanted to interview five because I, I think there were some other very qualified people, but at the end of the day, they were just very prepared to, um, um, hire Mr. Thornley. And we each got one question to ask him. And I asked him, because he said he wasn't really thinking about being a city manager until some people in the community reached out to him to be to apply for the job and I wanted to know who are these people who have been talking to you because the city manager has to represent everyone and can't have a, a small constituency who you know are his um, you know big advocates for him to get the job and then I also um, asked him about that he didn't disclose who those people were but he also disclosed that he'd been reaching out before the recruitment to some of my colleagues so some of them have had had conversations with him about the hiring. I hadn't. I wanted to ask him more about, um, you know, his background. Um, He's a registered lobbyist with the city right now for a development um, association. I'm going to ask him a little bit about that. But at the end of the day, you know, the council at the end of the day is always right. Because in, in many ways, unless you get over to the courts in some issue of legal point, the council makes the decisions and they made the decision um, I was one to six, um, not comfortable in bringing on another unseasoned city manager. He's only had 14 months as an assistant city manager over in Sparks. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a different city. Was, it's no, very different. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, they, they're, they, they're, they're a good, well-run city. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he came out of the city attorney ranks, which isn't really, um, uh, you know, not a, lo- a large breadth of experience, um, you know, works with a lot of departments, but just in a very narrow way. And so, um, you know, I wanted to vet him more. And um, and I thought we had one candidate who did it, who came with so much experience on some of the big issues that Reno's facing as a fast growing city, which are really of a, a fiscal uh, nature. And she offered a lot. Um, and then there were uh, two other candidates who were very seasoned city managers who didn't get the chance to interview with us. But at the end of the day, the council's always right. They hired, they made the decision last Wednesday to hire him or two Wednesdays ago. Mm-hmm. And just today, because we're taping this on Wednesday, um, they executed a contract with him and I did not support that contract either. Well, thank you for that. I really, you know, and that's the kind that's the kind of government that I want to see. I want to see, you know, I don't want to see everyone always agreeing. And I just really I really that was the moment that I thought we need to get Jenny on the show because I really appreciate somebody speaking, you know, sp- dissenting from from a decision that I feel like was made with haste. Um and there were, you know, we I have a friend who went and did the due diligence to research every single candidate and write a brief um bio basically on every single person so that you know others could be informed about the issue and it, you know it would have been nice for for that to be you know something that council did or the clerk or whoever, you know what I mean? Um so that everybody could kind yeah. of know who these people were. Um so I do I do want to thank you for that. 
Um, sure. I mean, COVID is a tough one to operate in, but, um, you know, we can't use COVID in any way for everything, to be right? a uh, shield <laughs> yes. for good, transparent government. Yeah, there was one woman in particular, I don't remember her name, but she, um, and maybe that's my bias that she was a Black woman, but she had implemented some programs in her city that could have really benefited um, Reno, and I really thought that her experience was excellent. So, I don't know. Hopefully, next time there's a, a pooling, we look towards people that... Um, you know, have some some foresight on some issues that we're about to face. Um, and then we do have a question about a sensitive issue, and we've kind of brought it up on the show before, but I don't I, – I like to hear something from the source. And um, I know – I read a couple of articles, but they weren't very clear, and it just didn't seem – I don't feel comfortable having um, – having an opinion until I hear it from the person. So I know that there is some kind of um, discrepancy between you and a houseless person. And I just, I was just wondering if you could set the record straight on that one so we can all understand what that was about. Sure, sure, Thank sure. You. So my policy, um, you know, the uh, homeless uh situation, which has accelerated in Reno since we came out of the Great Recession, started growing a lot, is just, um, you know, it's just really become uh, the central, one of the most important central issues that we're challenged with more so than, you know, previously. Um, And it's really tied also to mental illness because too many people are deteriorating and dying on our streets without... um, the human services, their human services needs being met and their medical care for the mental illness and addiction. So mm-hmm. we all know that, but, um, for, for it to be solved, that problem, it's going to take resources and it's going to have to be at different government levels. And the level of the city is the one that's most responsible for it. Cause we're very involved in the built environment, right? The allocation of space, you know, you got residences here, you got parks here, you got wildland here, you know, um, you know, the outwarding space of, you know, community city employees are out there. Um, uh, you know, so we're, but as, as the creatures of the state, we're the least ones able to control our own destiny in terms of resources. Right. You know, we can't, we have no ability to create any new resources to solve that problem. We only, are able to address it with the resources that flow to us primarily from the feds. Mm. Use a little bit of money, but we've got some, that's now the state. Do they have some resource or the county? Yes, they do. They're mm. the social services agency. And they also have some resources on the table that they've decided not to exercise at this time mm. for this issue. And the Reno city council actually today said, if you don't do it, we want to do it. And we want to dedicate it to homeless services. Mm-hmm. The state, you know, they're really big in the game. And, of course, the feds, who have solved homelessness for the veteran population. Right. Um, if there's a vet that's not that's homeless, he, and they're usually he, is service resistant. But they've got all the resources out there the veterans need, and they just haven't decided to address it for the general public. So at the city level, um, where we are balancing and allocating space, um, I've just increasingly seen too many instances of uh, Reno neighborhoods, um, public safety, you know, uh, problems. And primarily this last year, a lot of fires. I don't know if any of you walk around and see propane tanks for sale outside of convenience stores, mm-hmm. but it seems like in the last five or six years, 
every single convenience store has a propane tank stand because they're being sold to homeless folks for homeless camps, you know, understandably for warming. Well, a lot of those explode. And uh, there were videos last winter of, you know, trailer parks and trailers are very uh, flammable, you know, having fires outside of their, you know, doors, um, you know, fire coming and, you know, rescuing that or even in, you know, neighborhoods along the river. So it's a very serious issue. We have, um, so if there's a fire threat uh, and a homeless camp, I will be calling for that removal because, you, you know, that's, that's just people in their homes, you know, with these camps. But now where else is there a threat to public safety and welfare? Generally, it is in the insanitary conditions of camps, um, you, you know, to the river because the Ward 1, you know, traverses a lot of the river. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, we want good river health because that's where we drink, we play out of. Now, um, when COVID hit, the CDC said, can't move camps unless you have a place to move them, people too. And we had a, we did out of a place at that time. We always had the event center, but there was a little bit of shyness in terms of the, um, you know, the apparatus uh, under Chief Soto, the, you know, the staff and their our contractors right. to move uh, those. But we had one gentleman who took up residency under the Keystone Avenue Bridge, right across from McKinley Park, sure. and um, and over a period of about a month. 40% of my contact with constituents, and it was just a, a drumbeat, was this camp, this camp, this camp. So I'm defecating. There's children there. We can't, you know, we were walking over to the river. One person finally said, Jenny, I, I have had a conversation. I live nearby. I've had a conversation with this guy. He is deteriorating, and I am very worried. And I've been trying to ask our chief to address the situation. Another gentleman who's in a wheelchair um, sent me a video of him on a Saturday, Sunday, rolling along his wheelchair along the river path there along Riverside Drive, and um, the the path was blocked with this man's camp. Mm-hmm. And that wheelchair individual had to traverse, you know, the slopey berm down to Riverside Drive in his wheelchair. He's very skilled, but it, you can see that the allocation of space that this person had chosen, where people are bearing witness to him defecating. Um, or having to, you know, for the disabled, you know, jog around, you know, right. move around him. It was at the point, and I was trying to give the administrative staff the cover of bringing this issue of this specific person, but also general the CDC guidelines to the council to mull it over and give the direction that was needed. You know, if sure. a camp becomes to the point that it is, you know, on the river and there's, um, y- you know, uh, visible you know, we have to see this person toileting Which, you um, know, often or if, you know, I, yeah. I so get that it. was kind of why I called it out. Okay, I get it. I understand. But at the same time, um, you know, I used to live in that neighborhood. I used to right by um, Idlewild Park on Riverside. Um, and now I live in a different neighborhood, um, a little closer to 4th Street. And it seems like, you know, no one really cares that it's in my neighborhood. Nobody, you know, and I, I don't, um, I, you know, I go for walks with my child through, you know, down fourth street off of Valley, because I think it's important that he sees the condition that humanity is left in. And I don't shield him from people defecating on the street because it's, you know, I would hope that he would want to do something more, um, were he ever in charge of something like that, uh, 
in in the world rather than just push them to a more impoverished neighborhood, which is basically, you know, I think that the problem that we're seeing is that we have this hostile architecture, um, which is actually a term that my son, he's 11, likes to use a lot. Um, we have this hostile architecture where the old bus station is, where people were perfectly fine camping, and then we got, you know, that's gone now, and, there, and all of these places where people were perfectly fine on 4th Street, where everyone would like to ignore them. Um, living and now they went down to the river and now all you know because that makes sense because they need running water etc they're people um and now there's really just nowhere and um a friend of mine uh plan let me know or action I'm sorry let me know that 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 uh bus station hostile architecture cost ten thousand dollars so I'm just you know I I would love to see things reversed, you know, if it's, the problem isn't the person defecating in the street. The problem is that there's a person that has to live on the street, you know? So, and, and that, that building where the, you know, where the old bus station was or Harrah's or all of these open, you know, these older, these older uh, motels or all of these vacant properties where we could at least temporarily be housing people like that should be the thing that we're looking to rather than, you know, how do we get these people off the river? I don't really think they want to live on the river as much as we don't want them to live on the river, you know? Um, They need, they need housing. And there's a, there's a little girl who's 14 that started building um, tiny homes for the homeless that cost $800 a piece. So if we, you know, if you do the math, if we just use that $10,000 or something, you know, a small amount of money um, that we could even source from the community or other organizations to do something like that, you know, that could be done in a couple of months very cheaply. Um, and it just feels like because there are so many studies that have had so many solutions and creative um, ideas as, as to how to remedy these um, houseless uh, crises that the city doesn't really want to. Um, and it just kind of appears that way. You know, um, I've lived in in rough neighborhoods in New York and L.A. and and this and, you know, there are certain neighborhoods you don't want to go into and walk by. But that's not the case in Reno. I can walk through any houseless um, camp and anything. These are really just people who don't have homes. They're not, you know, and yes, some of them are uh, mentally deteriorating. But these aren't these aren't the dangerous kinds of neighborhoods that um, we see in other cities. These are just people without homes. So I don't I'm wondering, like, is there, you know, if we could start talking about what we what we can do to give them homes as opposed to what we do to address their behavior and where they where they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's just it it is um, super complex and it is a resource issue. Right. Like I said, and and um and you know, um, it, you know, I, I I hear you on that. I mean, I moved to the Philadelphia area in 1985, which was really yeah, on different. the slide of American cities. Mm-hmm. You know, American cities were really in a slide. I don't know if you or your listeners remember. You know, New York City was. Uh, basically, you know, so disinvested, so deteriorated, so bankrupt mm-hmm. in those early 80s, late 70s. So, you know, American cities have gone through uh, cycles and, and, you know, we're so different. We're a new city, right? We're, well, yeah. Um, and well, and now we talk about, you know, New York has rent control in a lot of places. And that's a that's a big reason, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot of, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in in New York was terrible in the 80s, but the rent has been the same. So now it's getting yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now you have cities are great um, 
you know, attractions for great um, job attractions, but they also, um, you know, have the high housing costs. Um, so that's part of it. Yeah. But then a part of it is, you know, the mental illness and, um, and then, you, you know, supply and, and so on. So there's, there is a lot going on. I, with respect to that individual, um, he was not in the right place. And I, I don't advocate for them to, to move into other wards or other places. There's mm-hmm. a strip along third street, you know, just mm-hmm. along the, um, the trench there where camps have taken up. And, and I haven't called on those because I don't see any fire danger there. The other gentleman, he was cooking there across from the Kinley, but he wasn't going to start a fire. It was more the defecation and the blocking yeah. of the course. So, you, you know, so you have to be really specific and narrow. Um, but you know, we say, people say things like, well, the city doesn't care. Okay. Um, that's not a great argument because um, I think to the person, the Reno city cares very greatly. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you really, really, really need to understand what a city is and particularly what a city is in um, Nevada in places in states, places like California. And, and really they, despite it have not made a lot of progress, but you know, LA city council themselves can exercise and yeah. has, you know, millions of dollars to yeah. throw at this problem. And that's the thing. And, you and know, I... that's not even on the table. That's right. not even on the table for the city of Reno. So conversations need to occur to be effective with your legislators, but of course, those Carson City folks, you know, they're that that economy, that state budget has fallen off of the cliff. Yeah. So you know, you know, everyone's looking to the the feds, um, but you know, it's all in the details. I have not objected to um, keeping the event center downtown open mm-hmm. um, for, as a homeless resource, and people say, oh, oh, you know, well, we're not having conventions. And the city of San Diego, that is, um, you know, not a small tourism town, they've got their, um, you know, they're housing people in their convention center right now. Yeah. So um, we do have a little that. window of opportunity with COVID. Yeah, we do have a little window of opportunity with the federal COVID money that's come forward. And I would really encourage advocates to keep your um, eyes on that. For example, today, um, we set aside $450,000 to um, be used for um, people who are struggling with evictions who come out of the motel, yes, yes. just specific to motel residents who are facing evictions. If they're in the muni court on an eviction, our city attorney can offer that up as a little bit of a piece. But That's please wonderful. also remember that a big part of the housing problem is also um, wages. Mm-hmm. And um, and so d- don't forget that the other side of the equation is always incomes and we've had tremendous income stagnation in america yeah so i agree and there's one little thing too i know i was listening to um everybody talk about having um like a community or a committee on um on houselessness and uh the one the one little part about that that i wanted to suggest um was just to maybe have um, when you're talking about who who to have on the committees, wonderful suggestions, social workers who, you know, um, doctors, everybody like that, um, is to have a homeless person on it because, you know, they, they know what they need. Impacted people know more about what they need than any of us know. You know, you don't you don't know until you've lived it. Um, and then we just we do yeah. have one more question, um, Councilwoman, and I want to thank you again so much for for answering all these tough questions. And uh, I hope you understand that we just we really appreciate you for this. Yeah. Before I ask that question, I, I just wanted to say, uh, yeah, I thank you for uh, 
bringing up um, residents who live in motels, hotels. They're part of our uh, houseless uh, community as well. Um, I've heard lots of um, horrible, terrible things, uh, specifically about the Ponderosa Motel. Um, I have a friend uh, that works closely with uh, homeless and uh, houseless community in Reno and the conditions in that hotel and motels, as you can imagine, is pretty awful. And so I thank you for that, Jenny. Um, but we, we'd like to uh, transition into something else. We kind of touched on it earlier um, where you mentioned Micaiah Lee uh, and how that was something that was under the jurisdiction of Sparks City Council and Sparks Police because Micaiah Lee was shot and killed by Sparks Police. Um, but uh, we've looked into it, we've done a lot of research about it, and we were we saw that uh, Sparks PD was being investigated uh, or by Reno Police Department. So I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think Reno Police Department investigating Sparks Police Department creates any bias, specifically in the instance of Reno Police investigating Sparks Police Department and the shooting and death of Micaiah Lee? And uh, do you agree with District Attorney Chris Hicks' decision on um, Micaiah Lee's death being justifi- justified by Sparks Police Department? Well, um, you know, that's that's a great question, and it gets into the police reform issue. And, um, you know, I think we all uh, know that it's landscape we need to go into, and I'm looking forward to, you know, having those conversations um, pretty, um, you know, going forward with the Reno City Council. The, the focus of that mind of mine on um, police reform, and I've been carrying it around since I came on the council, has been um, auditing the department from a performance uh, basis, and it's just the best practice. You take each department, you audit it, and I've been carrying around the 1999 audit uh, for the Reno Police Department, and it's been a go-to document for me. I've shared it with the chief. I've shared it with our city manager because they didn't have access to it. It was very comprehensive, and um and I, I think that that's been a, you know, I've referred to it in many occasions. So, um, you know, uh, those external uh, looks at your departments are really, really key and important. I mentioned the civil service issue. I'm also kind of focused on uh, workman's comp and, you know, how many of our officers, you know, how are they doing um, and what are their trends of workman comp? And we're going to be auditing that function of the city very soon. So that is one area. Um, those have been kind of the, the even prior to this, didn't it might go to police issues. But the nature of investigations of officer-involved shootings, I do not believe should be passed off between Reno, Sparks, and Washoe County. Um, I have respect Thank for, you. Um, you know, them, all of them, but they all go to an academy together. You know, we yeah, have it's friends investigating friends. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say that. I just I just want to say they participate on a lot of regional teams. So they have these networks. Yeah, they have these networks. And I think that uh, we're small, isolated community here. If you were in L.A. County, you could say, sure, have Chula Vista come investigate Burbank. No Mm -hmm. problem. Whatever. Have protocols. But and and I got to give Jason Soto credit because he's the one who understands what the reforms are, he and Attorney General Aaron Ford. And I think what they want to do, and I don't know if it was came after that legislature and didn't make it or if it needs legislative change, but it's somehow in the AG's office 
you have some resources or teams to be deployed to do these investigations. I mean, I've asked about Truckee coming down or Sacramento coming down um, and said, and have been told that's not as viable as having um, it come down out of our state AG's office. Now, you might have a state AG at one time, like Aaron Ford, who's going to be very proactive about that. I don't, I don't know that landscape, but I do think that um, it is an area to solve. Now, on terms of the Micaiah Lee shooting, um, you know, I followed it, but I will admit that um, I have not studied it or seen it. Um, you know, I've been really focusing on on Reno issues, so I'm not going to opine on that. But within terms of D.A. Hicks, um, you know, it is ultimately his call to do um, what he feels he should do. Um, I've had some conversations with him on on other issues, and I'm not an expert on the D.A. role, but I am I am I do have questions about the D.A. role. I, I don't know that the grand jury process is used as much in the Washoe County as it should. And I'm not saying for police issues. I'm just saying for investigation purposes of of um, public concern. So I'm not, I'm not tying that to that issue, but, um, but, you know, I'm just don't have a formulated opinion or view on, on that, but I will let people know that when we have an incident and uh, particularly when it comes to litigation on those, um, you know, we do follow them pretty closely and have a lot of conversations, but I, I do the same also on, um, you know, any pedestrian, um, bicyclist fatality too in Ward 1 mm-hmm. because those are important to me and arson too. You know, I want to let you know yeah. arson's become a big concern of mine. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate you not, um, you know, speaking on something that you're not. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, because we just kind of feel like the police should not investigate the police. Like we uh, touched on a little bit. Uh, there's kind of some kind of maybe not friendship, but camaraderie with police. And, and I know and some, some of the, of the off- officers. Yes, right. some of so the officers. Some officers have, you know, had questionable murders. Um, we say murder on this show. I know you have to say officer-involved shooting, but, um, you know, multiple times. And then the officers go on to stalk the victims um, and uh, the victims' families. And we've been speaking to some of those families um, about those accounts, you know, following them to work, going to their homes, intimidating them after they're already grieving. And, um, just feel like there's not really enough <laughs> enough said about that. And so we're wondering about, you know, how do you feel about community-based um, oversight? Yeah, yeah. I do think, I have always thought that, you know, if the Parks Department can have a an oversight advisory committee, so can, you know, the, the law enforcement. You know, is that a function of our Human Rights Commission? I don't know. But I also want to say that I do find that people really want to be of service to their community. Mm-hmm. You know, become a police officer. The Oof. smartest gal from my high school went down to Stanford. I'll tell you this. She went down to Stanford and she married a guy, first generation, um, a Mexican-American who also was from Stanford. And he was going back to become a San Jose police officer because that's where he felt he could give back to his community the most. And, you know, it may be true, even in these times. Um you know, someone told me in college, you want to make a difference in your community, go work in the state corrections department. Um, and that was in New Mexico where they were under uh, U.S. Department of Justice uh, purview. You know, so some of these tough enforcement jobs, uh, you know, they're high callings because we really do need people with the social work and the empathy and the activist mindset to go in and, 
and take on these jobs as careers. I, I just, you know, I, I really like, do believe that still. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to stick with teaching kids the arts to prevent them from encountering <laughs> police officers or jails. <laughs> That's good. Teaching gardening good too. Yes. Good. All art gardening, those things. We can, we can keep them out of jail. We don't have to just assume them. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, no. Yeah, mass liberation could never, could never endorse that because we okay. we understand and, and we we found that a lot of our elect, local officials and and others and police themselves don't understand or are completely ignorant. Councilman Doer, Naomi Doer, being a prime, um, <laughs> being a prime individual, really ignorant of the historical reason for the police um, at, as an instrument of racist violence and settler colonial violence. So that doesn't just go away, right? The police have never been reformed um, at, at, at core. For instance, in Portland, half of arrests made by the police are of homeless folks. So I'm sure lots of people in Reno would be very happy with that. Um, but that tells you right there, if we defund the Portland police force by 50%, um, they they would they might have other things to do, um, but it's not an impossible ask when police are literally enforcing social problems and social crises that local officials and and local bodies like city councils are failing are failing to solve. So, I'm of the opinion it's very dangerous actually, um, and to to encourage someone to to join policing. But with that, um, and we didn't ask you about that, but. With that, we want to thank you so much for your time. Um, we've been, and if you have any, I guess, last remarks, we've been on the call with Councilman Jenny Breckis and having a wide-ranging discussion. Um, we thank you for your time, and we actually are going to have, um, we've reached out to the Fatal Encounters creator and former UNR professor, so maybe he could have us on to talk about whatever discrepancies in his data um, himself also. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for the focus on the issue and, uh, you know, the continuation focus on it and helping um, bring the topic forward and, and just, you know, moving forward with it um, towards purpose. So thank you very much. And yeah, I'd love to hear when Brian comes on. Thank you. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see you at the next meeting. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye, <laughs> you guys. Bye. Take good care. You okay, too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. And that was Councilwoman Jenny Breckis, Ward 1. We'd like to thank our fellow DJs. Um, this is KWNK 97.7. This is Mass Liberation Radio. I'm Kaylee. I'm Lily. And I'm Nathaniel. And we're going to close out with writing by my friend, Imani Fela. We love her. We'll, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Peace out. Peace. We can't agree on anything anymore. As a country, we just can't agree. We just fight about everything. We can't even agree on Black Lives Matter. That's a controversial statement. Black lives matter. Not matters more than you, just matters. <laughs> matters. 
Not matters more than you, just matters. <laughs> matters. back with Mass Liberation Radio. I'm Kaylee. I'm Lily. And I'm Nathaniel. Mass Lib in the house. And uh, we just wanted to quickly go over headlines uh, this week because we wanted to uh, give a lot of our time to Councilwoman Jenny Breckis, but a lot of very important crazy things have happened and one of which is uh, Jacob Blake was paralyzed after he was shot by Wisconsin police. Uh, Jacob Blake was um, shot seven times and... In front of his children. Yes, in front of his children, trying to flee a very dangerous situation. Um, The bullets uh, severed his spinal cord and shattered some of his vertebrae. Um, he will be paralyzed from the waist down, like I mentioned, so he won't ever be able to walk again. Um, and so I think this is an interesting story because we hear a lot of times, uh, black people in America dying from the, uh, by the hands of police, but, uh, this man survived, but is going to have, um, his life changed forever, medical pilings and medical bills. So if uh, any of you have money, please donate to his family, to funds, because uh, he's going to need it. Um, and in response to that, uh, I mean, do do you, either of you want to add anything towards that? Um, do not look up the arrest records or anything of people mm-hmm. who are shot by state-sanctioned killers because that makes you a racist. Sorry, go on. Well, I think that's a good point, Lily. Um, I forgot about that. I've been seeing a lot of folks uh, bringing up his record and um, really, uh, you know, misquoting that record and saying a lot of things about him being a sex offender and he's not listed um, as a sex offender. So there's a lot of lies um, going around also. Nathaniel, did you have anything to add? Go to the second point first. <laughs> yeah, keep going. The the second shooting. Yeah, I was gonna. I just wanted to know if you had anything else to say about Jacob Blake. Oh, I do, but it's related. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and in response to Jacob uh, Blake being shot by. Um, Wisconsin police, a young um, man, 17-year-old, shot two protesters um, protesting against Jacob Blake's shooting. Um, This young man was um, a recruit for the police, if I'm correct. Sure. Um, He also, yeah, he's... um Shocking, a Trump supporter recently attended a rally. Um, and this kind of mm-hmm. younger uh, younger person emboldened um, racism and call all of these dog whistles and calls for the hunting of black people is not new. It just looks new. I'm really struggling with how new all of this is for everyone when this is 
a tale as old as time. Um, in fact, Jacob Blake's sister gave a really wonderful um, little speech. I'm sorry, not little speech, and, and a powerful, very important speech um, mm-hmm. about her brother saying, basically saying the same sentiment that she's she hasn't even cried because she's angry and she's numb. And this is the kind of thing that we as black people and brown people have grown up knowing about our entire lives. It has never stopped. It was never new. Nothing is escalated or de-escalated. There have always, since the dawn of America, been black people getting hunted by groups or the police or the KKK or individuals or whatever. And if you're just now opening your eyes, cool, but keep it to yourself because we don't, you know, we don't need a reminder and we don't, you know, we are angry and sick of it. It's not new. And all of these people are our brothers and sisters. That's why we say brother and sister so much because Eric Gardner and Sandra Bland are as much my brother and sister as Jacob Blake is her brother or as Sandra Bland is her sister because we are all united in this horrible place that we didn't ask to come to. The only thing I'll add, sisters, uh, is besides being outraged as well, um, is that it's interesting in Wisconsin, there's a black lieutenant governor and he has been making, or he's been on camera, of course, recently. Um, Mandela Barnes and he mentioned it's both I could feel his outrage as like a black person and just like a sensible human after watching someone be slaughtered by a state agent. You could see, you could certainly feel that, but he was also on Democracy Now! like today and and he was being pressed on to what does accountability actually look like? What is going, what is justice going to look like in this process? And his words just half of what he, I stopped listening because it just rang hollow. Right. He started talking about, he started talking about training and some other things too, just like Councilman Breckis was talking about, like I, which are not related things, right? You don't need training to stop someone from grabbing someone's <laughs> shirt and right. with one arm and, and shooting, <laughs> you know, shooting them. Right. You need right. To- I'm sure there's words. For, <laughs> there's like better words to describe this type of assassination in cold blood. Um, and we're talking about training. So anyway, I, I just I I think that that in that's interesting. And in Nevada, we have a black attorney attorney general, and councilman also just mentioned attorney general Aaron Ford. You know what are these black faces in high faith places? going to do to bring us justice um in wisconsin they have an independent oversight apparently oh (laughs) (laughs) that is something he did say in this black lieutenant governor so he's not a law enforcement agent it's not the same thing but he was a, a state representative and helped was part of passing this independent oversight so we'll see if this family finds justice um in this case and i I'm I'm a little frustrated at how the 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 um, the picture and and video of his mom calling for for peace basically is like what all the headlines and all the broadcast news is leading mm. with. Not that like or they should have led with the lieutenant governor maybe who's like how 
how did any cop think that this was still okay in 2020 after the last months of protesting against racial injustice? So is the protest actually going to do anything? Did it do anything? Not in this case. And two, like, is this, you know, is this the Antifa you were looking for? Is this the ISIS? Is this the illegal? Like, what, you know, this person, here we go, everybody that's so worried about violent protesting and looting, y'all's team just literally paralyzed or, you know, killed someone, murdered someone who's denied... Two people. Two people, I'm sorry. And one was denied hospital access. So that's on you. So, you know, I'd rather have I'd rather have my house burned down than two people die in front of it. And if that's not your value, then I don't know what's wrong with you. And that was uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old that killed um, uh, two protesters in Kenosha. Um, he's part of the Black Back the Blue movement. And he Weird. was an uh, aspiring uh, cop. He wasn't a recruit. He was an aspiring cop. Same, same. But. And that's my cop. So back the blue movement, much like what we saw in Douglas. So like y'all that are going out there and poking the beehive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two <laughs> dead, one injured. Sorry, I missed the injured. Two um, dead, one injured. And, and you know, um, so we can see. And I'm sure he was peacefully taken away. And maybe they gave him a milkshake well, on the way. Yeah, he didn't die. So. He didn't die. He was yeah. a threat. Mm-hmm. It's mm. incredible. And, yeah, it's I think, incredible. It really is. I think it's important to note, too, with uh, Jacob uh, Blake's case as well as a lot of people are bringing up um, he didn't comply or uh, uh, that he may have been guilty, like Lily said. But Mm -hmm. the police shouldn't kill guilty people either. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, they shouldn't kill anyone. They shouldn't kill people that don't comply. They shouldn't injure people or paralyze people that don't comply. And I think a lot of people forget about that. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Right. Just like and, a teacher can't touch your kid if they don't comply. That seems to be able to happen all the time. You know, teachers get fired every day for putting their finger on a child. And teaching police are literally paralyzing and shooting people 30 times. Or somebody recently shot 30 times. Uh. And, we, and we also see... In Wisconsin, that they impose a curfew, of course, as a tactic to repress demonstrations and to impose order. And I think as we close out this episode, um, for folks who might have joined later in the broadcast, we started off our um, interview and conversation with Councilwoman Jenny Bruckus about the curfew that was imposed under similar circumstances, similar, not identical circumstances in Reno. But how and try to talk about how curfew is used unjustly and oppressively. So I've my co-host reminded me to um, bring into this conversation a book that we've been reading. Shout out to the white folks that bought it for us. Thank yes. you, White Allies. Thank you. Police, Police, a field guide um, by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Um, and I just want to read a little on curfew to close out this episode. Hopefully, Councilwoman Breckage listens and understands even more why curfews are problematic. A curf and 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 thanks to our listeners. Is that okay with with Lily and Kaylee? If I close out that way, of course, I won't have it any other way. Awesome, and we'll see y'all next week at Massive Radio. 
A curfew is a form of incarceration. It is the police regulation and control of the movements of members of a population through the restriction of time and The policing of curfew is always underwritten by force and violence. Like roundups, canine police dogs, and police helicopters, curfews impose limits on the time and space of, usually, the poor. Often referred to as a lockdown, a curfew is at once a police ordinance and a carceral formation. It transforms both public and private spaces into spaces of captivity, with the choice, disobey and be captured by police, obey and become a prisoner in your own home. A curfew seeks to purify a particular public space through threats of detention and arrest while simultaneously transforming private living quarters into makeshift holding cells. Curfews emerge out of a profound ruling class fear of working class revolt, not simply disorder. We could go on and on, but that'll do it for this week's edition of Massive Radio. Thank you for listening to Mass Liberation Radio. We'll see you next week.